Hello, and welcome to this episode of Great Conversations. My name is Angie Cooksey, and I'm your host for this conversation. We're privileged today to be here in the office of Thomas Ehrlich, former president of Indiana University and currently faculty here at the School of Graduate Education at Stanford University. Dr. Ehrlich, thank you very much for joining us today. And I've only named, rattled off a couple of the titles that you've held in your illustrious career in higher education. Would you mind sharing with me your history in higher education and the incredible contributions that you have made? Well, that's a nice compliment, Angie, and I'm delighted to give a brief rundown. My wife says I can't hold a job, so uh, it will sound like a number of gear shifts, which it has been. I started uh, teaching at the Stanford Law School in 1965. Hard for me quite to realize, but that's when I did. 1970, I became dean of the Stanford Law School, and I was there until 1975 when I shifted gears and went back to Washington, where I had been, to be the first president of the Legal Services Corporation, which funds civil legal help for poor people. And I was there until 1978 when I went to work for President Carter in charge of foreign aid policy, and I worked with him uh, until January 1981 when we had a new president, and I went off to be, after a brief uh, in, uh, other shift at the Brookings Institute, I went uh, to be the provost of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I was there until 1987 when I came to be, through my good fortune, the president of Indiana University. And I was there until 1994. And then um, my wife and I decided we had to move back to be closer to children and grandchildren. And so we came back to California and I spent uh, some years teaching in the California State University system and promoting service learning particularly. And uh, after that, shifted to the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, which had moved, just was moving from Princeton to uh, Palo Alto and then Stanford. And I worked uh, there for 11 years writing books and talking about higher education, particularly about civic and moral uh, and political responsibilities. And um, after uh, 11 terrific years there, came here to the Stanford Graduate School of Education, where I've been for the last nine years. You are really, for teaching.iu.edu and great conversations, the perfect conversation. So if I may, I'd like to go ahead and jump in and ask you. Absolutely. That would be my pleasure. Tom, what do you think is the greatest challenge that stands for higher education, maybe as an obstacle, between higher ed itself and achieving higher education's mo most important larger goals of building the commonwealth and improving the quality of life for all of our citizens. Well, of course, as you're gently suggesting, there are a whole series of challenges, <laughs> but at least two of the big ones. One. Uh, 
pretty obvious, maybe one a little less uh, self-evident, but the obvious one is access. And here we are in the 21st century when it's realized that college isn't a luxury. It isn't something you might have to do, but it would be nice it's something you have to do. There's resistance to that notion, uh, even though the evidence is pretty compelling that not only are the wage benefits hugely significant, but the uh, moral, civic, uh, social benefits of a college education are absolutely critical. They're critical now, and you and I are talking in late uh, 2017, but decades or two out, I have every reason to believe they're going to be all the more important. Here we are, where about 60 plus percent of high school graduates go on to college. I wish that higher percentage graduated from college. So when I say access, I don't mean simply getting into school. I mean graduating and finding an opportunity to utilize the knowledge, the skills, the attributes that you've learned in college to be an effective citizen, an effective parent or spouse, if that's what you choose, and certainly effective in the workplace as well. And while, yes, there still are some jobs that uh, don't require a college education, the numbers of those jobs that are being replaced by robots and other is, is, uh, means they're fast uh, disappearing. So I have every reason to believe that uh, the same move toward increased access that has come in, started of course in the, 19, in the 20th century with uh, GI Bill and one of the things that I was particularly proud uh, of Indiana University is that Herman B. Wells, my hero and also my dear friend when I came to Indiana University, was one of the few great presidents who supported the GI Bill it isn't generally known that the Ivy League presidents all were opposed to it. They thought it was a terrible idea to let all these uh, GIs pour into their Ivy-covered walls. But Herman said, no, they need an education. They deserve an education. They fought for our country. And that was, of course, a transformative experience for higher education. Well, in the same way, I think we're facing now uh, the potential, the need for the transformation of higher education in terms of access, but it isn't enough to do access. The second part of the equation is to be able to say we are preparing uh, men and women of all ages. And of course at Indiana University, a very large share of our students are older, part-time working with families. and increasingly, I think we're going to see that <coughs> lifelong education is not just an occasional thing that one does if one's transiting, transiting out of one job into another, but it's a permanent way of life, lifelong education. So we need to reinvent our institutions to be institutions of 
lifelong education on the one hand and education that is for the next decades when we have no idea what's going to happen except that it's not going to look like what we have today. That's not easy. It's not easy because uh, technology has so come to dominate everything we're doing that, uh, again, we're sure that it's going to look differently decades from now, but we don't know quite how. So we have to prepare our students to be sufficiently mentally and uh, agile so that they can deal with challenges we can't begin to understand at this point. And a big part of what I've heard you saying is that it's not enough to grant access at matriculation. It's not even enough to simply hope for graduation. But we have to really insert ourselves as faculty, as support mentors, to ensure that all students have equal access to learning and all the tools they need. Tom, how do you feel about the fact that teaching itself is that which is most prevalently visible for students? The classroom is where they spend their most time. How can teaching in particular, and the classroom in particular, be an important place to maybe further articulate these problems and adapt them to each individual campus, and maybe more importantly, how might you see the classroom as a unique pathway to solutions? I think it's an important pathway. I'm not sure I'd say it's unique, but it's certainly uh, a key one. And because I teach a course on teaching and learning for potential faculty members at colleges and universities when I'm here at Stanford, I thought a bit about just your, your question. And I think um, uh, there are some research-based uh, rules that really help us think about how to be effective in the dimensions you're talking about. And the first is to be sure you know um, where your students are coming from, uh, who they are. That sounds easy, but it actually takes, if, certainly in a big class, but even a small class, takes a fair amount of work to know who those students are, to know who they really are. You also have to know what information, or even more important, what misinformation they're coming in with. Um, one of my favorite books about teaching and learning talks about um, the stages of development starting with um, uh, the situation when um, you don't know what you don't know. And many of our students come with that uh, experience. They have no idea that yes. they don't know something. Uh, and uh, the next stage, of course, is that you begin to know what you don't know. And if you can get there, that's really a positive step because it's sometimes the biggest step. But then the third step is to gain competence. Uh, and the fourth step is what we call mastery, uh, so that um, you ride a bike without really thinking about it, you swim without thinking what you're doing, you just do it. And mastery means that you are able to take what you're learning in a particular 
field and transfer it to another site and situation and circumstance when you can actually use it. Again, that sounds easy, but over and over again I see uh, knowledge is siloed in courses so the students may be able to identify something. Uh, math is an easy example. They can do long division, but when they're actually to given a problem which requires long division, although it doesn't say that, uh, they don't know how to do that because it doesn't say in big letters long division problem. Uh, that's transfer. And so I think the academy generally shortchanges teaching. Uh, we have graduate programs sending our, our students to places like Indiana University with very little, if any, experience as teachers. Uh, and that's a, a sin, I believe. Uh, when I started teaching at Stanford 52 years ago, I had no experience. And because I had done well in the course I was teaching on contracts, I had a very hard time understanding why it was that students had such a difficult a challenge to wrap their heads around the concepts that I was teaching. They seemed quite self-evident to me. And it took quite a while for me to kind of catch my breath and say, you know, uh, I need to go where the students are because they're the ones who are learning and I have to try to step back and see what their problems are. There's a wonderful uh, set of experiences I had at Indiana University um, after I was president, but I was much involved with them. When the history department at Bloomington, which is a terrific history department, but some of its leaders were concerned because in the introductory history courses, uh, American, European, Asian history, but particularly American, uh, even though students had had a high school course, uh, they didn't seem to be able to grasp uh, the concept. They couldn't think like a historian. And that's what the historian, history faculty wanted. So instead of just grousing and complaining about the students, they sat down and broke their introductory course, courses actually, into small bits, sat with students, and listen to those students talk about what they understood or didn't understand. And then over time we're able to put back together the course that really started where the students were and move so that they did indeed become uh, prepared to think like historians. And that uh, set of experience, which led to a, a wonderful book and uh, has been copied in other disciplines, is what I think is needed, but too often not done. We blame it on the students that they don't understand uh, and don't try to move to where they are. You've really anticipated my next question, and, and that is a, just a general query. It taps into the researcher in you and your knowledge of universities writ large. Are we doing enough to prepare these young teachers? You intimated that 50 years ago, you might have liked a, a little bit of a kickstart of preparation before being in front of that classroom. T 
Tom, are we doing enough in 2017 to support and to prepare our young faculty members? The answer to that is easy. It's no. Uh, we're not. And uh, it's easy to point fingers, of course, but um, the reality is that uh, even in schools of education like the one where I am now, we're not requiring graduate students to have even a course in teaching. It is true that recently many universities have started a teaching certificate program so that a graduate student who wants to teach physics or uh, English literature may not only know something about Jane Austen and, uh, and uh, Einstein's laws but also about good teaching. And I'm all for that. I've promoted uh, teaching certificates and the idea. So, but still, when I look around the country, there are lots of graduate programs, and I'd say probably most graduate programs, that don't have any significant concentration for their graduate students on teaching. Do we have the resources and we're just not mobilizing them? or? Would you call for even somewhat of a reallocation of resources in well, order to uh, make this happen? I don't happen? think it, it takes all that much resources. What it does take is some will. And the challenge is we have faculty who never had a course in teaching and learning, so why should their students have a course in teaching and learning? And um, the apprentice system, which is what we have in graduate education, does a, a good job uh, in lots of ways in preparing researchers. But given the fact that the overwhelming share of their graduate students from all places, including Stanford, are going to go to places where they, like Indiana University East, where you are, where they have to teach three or four courses a semester, and that's their job. They can do something else on the side in addition, that's great. But their main job is to be good teachers. Yes. And they're not being prepared to do that. Uh, and uh, as uh, I worked with a, a number of terrific uh, teachers at Indiana University to promote good teaching, and uh, I think uh, Indiana University is a, is a model of, of uh, good teaching and supporting good teaching and having a network of good teachers. But I don't want to say even there that uh, we're doing all we could do. And again, it's a part of the impetus for the yeah. establishment of this website and these conversations to begin to try to shore up some of that support. And again, I think that that shoring up begins to mobilize and leverage resources we really do have. Um, so maybe we don't necessarily need to dig into coffers or find new support, but maybe just revision. You had said earlier in the conversation, and it really intrigued me, that institutions need to reimagine themselves. Talk a little bit more about that. Tom, what would an ideal situation look like in terms of a university that's fully supportive of the teaching mission and fully supportive of the young faculty moving into that mission? Well, I think um, it's perfectly reasonable to say we want faculty to stay current in research 
and in some research universities to say we want them to do research. There, there's nothing inconsistent with research and teaching no, going no. together. They have a wonderful and relationship. And indeed, they should strengthen each other. Yes. But that said, uh, time is not infinitely expandable. And if you do have four courses a quarter to teach, uh, and you're going to really pay attention to the students, know who they are, know where their challenges are, help to meet those challenges, that takes a lot of time. If you're going to see your students not just in the classroom, but out of the classroom, not just in office hours, but in environments in which you can come to learn who they are and what makes them tick in various ways. That takes time, energy, and effort, but it's enormously valuable uh, for the students. And if they simply see a faculty person standing up there reading from her or his yellowing notes, it's just not going to work. Um, and it wasn't going to work anyway, but it certainly isn't going to work in the technological age when students are have their noses in social media all the time. Uh, and we have to do better. And one of the challenges there, incidentally, is, in my general opinion, uh, I'm wary of teachers who are great performers. Because I think they're mainly uh, showing themselves rather than teaching the students. Uh, there's some exceptions, but uh, I certainly, in thinking about what makes a good teacher, I think charisma is way overvalued. Uh, but what isn't overvalued is the connection with students and having them come away with, with learning that lasts, with education that has traction. And again, there are research that we now have, which we didn't used to have, a lot of good research on what makes, I mean, we know that, for example, if you want to teach art history, you don't want to do, have students just learn the chronology. You want to build it around schools. Impressionism, post-impressionism, uh, abstract impressionism, so abstract expressionism. Uh, you want to build it around big ideas. And the same is true in physics or some other field. You take a big idea and then you can stick a lot of knowledge onto those. Well, that uh, never occurred to me or others in an earlier era, but we now know enough about learning and how, how it works that uh, we can take those big ideas and translate them into traction, traction with traction, I mean, in terms of uh, uh, student learning. And it goes a long way in accomplishing that integrative learning that you had mm -hmm. talked about earlier, being able to transfer knowledge right. from one discipline to another. Tom, do you think that's really the key to this agility that our students need to have in the next century, maybe not even the next century, maybe the next 10 years? Do you think that transfer of knowledge and ability, that, that kind of application and, and a skillful application of theory in many environments is the key? Well, I think it's been a key always. I don't think this is anything new. Uh, Whitehead talked about yes. inert knowledge and it didn't move. It just sat there like a lump yes. and was worthless. Something uh, must be done with it, I believe, with in the end order of that. To. Yes. And uh, that's what transfer is all about. That's really what learning yes. is all about. So I absolutely agree it's uh, it's primary, but I don't think that's a new thing. I think it's always been true. It's harder now because we're transferring 
to so many regimes we don't understand uh, that are coming to be part of our lives before we really can begin to think about them seriously. And it's it really, I think it's agility in two directions. It's agility in the professional realm or the professional life of the student. But then I want to pick up on something else, another point you had made, that learning needs to be also reimagined and revisioned as lifelong. And would you agree in order to practice learning lifelong, that requires some agility and some, some willingness to, to change, right. But one of the many benefits I had from coming to Indiana University was learning from those older part-time working with family students, and I learned a lot from them. I think the challenge in institutions where they're both those transiting from adolescent to adulthood and those who are usually transiting from one job to another or from uh, some other uh, phase of their lives, but older part-time working, um, is to find ways so that they can learn from each other uh, as opposed to just have two camps. And that's, that's a challenge, but the adults bring experience and wisdom of age uh, the younger ones bring a whole lot of knowledge, obviously, particularly in terms of technology, but not exclusively, that they can help uh, their, their seniors in the same way my grandchildren regularly help me. Um, the challenge of lifelong learning, I think, is a particularly important one, and I don't know uh, of uh, many institutions that really do a, a good job here at Stanford, we have a program called Distinguished Career Institutes. When I'm an advisor to the program, you can come back, spend a year retooling, uh, think about your next uh, career or iteration, um, vocation, if not avocation. Um, and it works very well, but it's small and it's expensive. Uh, Going to scale with a with lifelong learning in ways that are really targeted on needs, not just vocational needs. I no longer can be a whatever, but uh, uh, social, spiritual uh, enrichment enrichment needs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, much as I liked and take regularly here continuing education programs taking taking romantic poetry this fall beautiful uh, it it doesn't quite do what we need to do because it's not really a coherent program it's a set of right. isolated courses that adults uh, can take and we can do better than that Tom I guess this last question is maybe the hardest and generally those who converse with me in these environments will give me most pushback about this one but I think this question is perhaps most compelling and that is when you look in your crystal ball and you see the future what would you describe that's in there what do you believe will change for higher education what's some, what are some of the variable changes that you think will occur? 
And how do you think our students might change in the future? Will that be a wonderful alphabet soup or will it be a kind of crazy mix? Well, of course, I don't know. Uh, that's the easy answer. It's the beauty uh, of it, though. <laughs> the harder answer is I could see us going two ways. One, which is frankly the way I'm worried about our going now, which is that the best research universities, particularly the private ones like Stanford, are going to be just fine. And they're going to do their thing. I don't think it actually will change a whole lot. Ideally, they'll do better. They'll infuse technology into the classroom, into the co-curricular arenas more regularly. Uh, we may even get to use social media more fastly in our courses, which would be a, a great thing if and when it comes. But uh, that's a small fraction, tiny fraction, uh, of Stanford's and the elite liberal arts colleges like Amherst and Williams. The main street of American higher education, which is public higher education, uh, is been restricted in funding. And worse hit are the community colleges, which is 40 plus percent of American higher education. And uh, their challenge has been getting tougher and tougher. And it's true in the campuses like IU East, where you are, and the other uh, campuses of Indiana University, apart from Indianapolis and Bloomington. Uh, and indeed, all, including the flagship campuses like those two, are, those are getting hit much more seriously by state cutbacks, which is why tuition has gone through the roof. And uh, I don't see the will to really change that. Uh, and that's worrisome. I mean, I don't see uh, public education seen as a public good uh, to the extent it used to be, see it much more as a private good that may be a part of a larger trend toward individualism and the me as a rather, rather than us. But uh, that's worse. The hope is that uh, with the right leadership, we'll see that, as I started when we began talking, uh, higher education is essential for everybody who will accept it. There are always going to be some who say not for me, and that's, that's all right if they think they can deal. But they're not overwhelmingly going to be dealing in the world in the future. And our society is going to have to pick them up and take care of them in a way that's not useful or productive uh, for the economy, let alone for the citizenry. And so that's, that takes uh, leadership, takes leadership in terms of the president, in terms of the Congress, in terms of state houses. And um, uh, obviously I'm, I'm a little uh, clouded by nostalgia, but it did seem to me there were more leaders who cared about education uh, than I hear speaking out publicly. Uh, and I guess it's only fair to say I don't quite hear it as clearly from even university presidents, as I'd like to hear it.
surely you have given all presidents a stellar example to follow yeah, if right. they will only bid that attention. It's hard to even find the words, Tom, to thank you for all that you have given not only to Indiana, the state, through your work in Campus Compact and establishing that, the work that you did at Indiana University and specifically establishing faculty academy for excellence, which is what FACET is now referred to. Thank you so much for all of your contributions to higher education across the nation. And a very personal thank you because you have been a personal inspiration. I have studied your work closely and you've incredibly um, impacted the work that I do every day in the classroom with students and in the community in civic and service learning. A sincere thank you, Tom Ehrlich. Oh, isn't that nice? And you have my thanks for this interview. I much enjoyed it, and I wish you and the whole program that you're leading well. Thank you very much. Good.